John chapter 19. Please stand and let's read from that chapter. Another scene from the suffering of Jesus. This passage describing, in fact, his death. John 19, beginning at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So... The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Amen. Now let's read the passage quoted last there in verse 37. Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah 12. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah... I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. 
and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. Amen. You can be seated. One of my heroes from church history is a man named Athanasius, Athanasius of Alexandria. He lived in the 300s AD. A little church history here. So there was a, a very important council of the church called the Council of Nicaea. Earlier we confessed the Nicene Creed, right? And it was partly produced, uh, it reflects the theology that came out of that council in the year 325, the Council of Nicaea. One of the things that council did was it established uh, the idea in Christian doctrine that Jesus was not a created being, um, sort of the, the first greatest thing that God ever made. That's what a heretic named Arius taught, taught that Jesus was the first and greatest creature that God made. But at the Council of Nicaea, the church assembled, and they were looking carefully at the scriptures, and they were saying no to Arius. They said, no, Jesus was actually God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who took on human nature in order to save us. Now, interestingly, for the next several decades, uh, the Arian heresy actually stayed pretty strong. Uh, There were some very powerful leaders in the church who still supported it. There were several emperors who sort of threw their weight behind it. Athanasius, on the other hand, consistently defended the orthodox teaching of the Bible, spelled out at Nicaea, and he defended that doctrine at great personal cost. There were five different times when he was actually exiled from his home city of Alexandria, as the politics of the empire sort of ebbed and flowed. And so the nickname that has come down to us 
through church history for Athanasius is Athanasius contramundum, which is the Latin phrase for against the world. Athanasius against the world, contramundum. And ever since, I don't know, at least high school, that has always been a very inspirational idea to me for some reason, that, that, uh, that courage to stand alone, to stand for the truth when the truth is not popular. It's um, one of the things that Athanasius sort of represents in church history. Athanasius contramundum against the world. I bring all of that up tonight, um, especially to introduce you to that phrase, contramundum against the world, because in our passage tonight, we are going to see the Lord assembling the entire world, it feels like, in battle against the city of Jerusalem, which seems at first like very bad news. Oh no, the whole world is coming to fight against God's people. But then you realize that God is doing this for a reason. He is doing it for this express purpose, so that through that grand confrontation, the Lord will be able to defeat the world and deliver his people. So we're going to start tonight with the first point, Jerusalem contra mundum. Now that you know what that means, I can, I can use the Latin phrase. Uh, get Jerusalem against the world, right? Jerusalem contra mundum, verses 1 through 6. After that, the second point will be a rising tide of glory, verses 7 through 9. And then third, the pierced and the penitent, verses 10 to 14. So Jerusalem contra mundum, a rising tide of glory, and the pierced and the penitent. Now, before we actually get into the oracle itself, I don't want us to skip over the introduction to it in verse 1. Zechariah introduces this prophecy by telling us something very important about God. He doesn't just say, thus says the Lord. He says, thus declares the Lord who, what? Who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. He's describing for us God the creator. God whose reach is so vast that if you think about the sky over our heads, he is the one who who stretched all of that out across the heavens. I can barely stretch a fitted sheet across my queen-size mattress. But the Lord stretched out the heavens. Downtown, they'll build these big high-rises, and if you've seen some of them going up, you know, first they, they dig down deep into the earth to put the foundation deep in the ground. In fact, any foundation of any building, including this one, rests on the earth or in the earth. But look at what this says about the Lord. The Lord founded the earth itself. The Lord laid the foundation for all other foundations. Okay? God the creator 
stretched out the heavens, founded the earth. God is also the source of all human life. He formed the spirit of man within him. This is all very important, the way that Zechariah is reaching back to the history of the creation of the world and of man in Genesis 1 and 2. He's doing this here to remind us, what kind of God are we dealing with here? Who is it who is going to act in judgment and salvation in these last three chapters of the book? This, by the way, is kind of introducing the final section of Zechariah. And the answer is, well, it is God the creator. That is the who of these last three chapters. God the creator. You might also say, as we think about this judgment and salvation in these last three chapters, one way to think of it as God bringing in a new creation. New creation is a a big theme throughout the Bible, and I think it's appearing very clearly in this section of Zechariah in particular. So he's describing for us God the creator as he's about to show us the new creation realities that uh, God is going to introduce into Israel's life and into the history of the world, um, racing towards the last day itself. So, keeping this in mind, this is God the creator, what does this creator God now say? Here's the oracle. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. So what happens in this, in this first section of the chapter is that God intentionally gathers Israel's enemies from all around to fight against Judah and Jerusalem. And why does he do it? He gathers those surrounding nations so that he can defeat them all at once. We've seen this in other prophets uh, before, how God will arrange this massive coalition of enemy nations to unite against his people so that he can confront them and defeat them all in one fell swoop. Uh, This is not only a theme in the Old Testament prophets, it is also a theme in the book of Revelation, the great battle of Armageddon describes the great climactic conflict of all history in that book uh, at at the very end of the Bible. It's the same theme drawn from this Old Testament imagery. God assembling the nations for the purpose of defeating them. Now, the Lord uses more than one poetic word picture to illustrate this. First, it's this cup. By coming to fight against Jerusalem, it's like these nations are going to have to take a great big swig of this powerful drink that is going to absolutely overwhelm them and cause them to stagger. They can't handle it. In verse 3, he compares Jerusalem to a heavy stone. And this reminds me of uh, the, the world's strongest man competitions where they, they'll pick up these enormous boulders. It's like, whoa, how can anybody even think about lifting that up off the ground? And you can imagine what would happen to somebody, say, like me. If I tried to do those things, I go up to that boulder and I try to move. Well, something's going to move, but it's not going to be the boulder. It's going to be a disc in my spine, right? These nations come as the aggressors. It seems like they have all the power. But in this ironic twist, they are the ones who are debilitated by their very effort to debilitate the people of God. 
Right? They come and they try to lift that rock of Jerusalem, but they're the ones who get injured in the effort to harm God's people. <coughs> God says he's going to strike their horses with panic, and their, <coughs> excuse me, their riders with madness, which this reminds me of the story of Gideon, where um, there's that huge Midianite army in the valley. Gideon's vastly outnumbered, but the, the Midianites do the Israelites' work for them. Uh, they don't, the Israelites don't really have to fight at all. The Midianites destroy one another in the, the panic that the Lord has brought upon them. Uh, but in contrast, with the blindness of the maddened war horses, of course, you have, on the other hand, the perfect vision of the Lord, verse 4, how he, he sees Ju- Judah clearly. His eyes are on them. He is caring for them. He's paying attention to them. He's giving them the power and the resources that they naturally lack so that they can win this victory by God's power. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength. How? They don't have strength in themselves. It's not their resources, their power, their political or diplomatic or military might that's going to accomplish this for Judah and Jerusalem. The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. It's like the psalm says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we are going to be different. We are going to depend on the name of the Lord, our God. And then you can see the power of God that starts working through these people in verse 6. Again, it's this irony because they're surrounded, right? They're enemies on every side, but imagine a, a, a wheat field. Imagine it's late in the season where the stalks have all started to, to dry out and turn brown. The whole field is like a tinderbox. You light a match in the middle of it, that field. And the match is, is tiny compared with all that standing grain that surrounds it. But what's going to happen? That whole field could go up in a blaze started from that single flame in the center. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And so the world around is going to be burned away. But one thing is going to remain. What is going to remain when everything else is consumed by fire? It's Jerusalem. Still standing. Um, It reminds me of Noah and the flood, right? Except that was water. This is fire. That comparison draw our minds to some New Testament teachings. You think about the book of 2 Peter. Peter connects... Together, that judgment by water in the days of Noah with the future judgment by fire when Christ returns. Um, Hebrews talks about the world being shaken. Why? So that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Again, it's a picture of everything else being destroyed and what is left. What is still standing when everything else is gone? What's going to last through that fire of God's judgment? Well, it's going to be the new creation. The new creation that God is bringing to life by his grace and power out of the midst of a dying world that is passing away. You remember, this is the God 
who stretched out the heavens in the first place, who founded the earth, who gave the breath of life to man. But this is about a new creation now. As the old one fades and is destroyed. Okay, now verses 7 through 9. As I was thinking about these next verses, which are related to what's come before, uh, but this new section, uh, the phrase came to mind, people will say, a rising tide lifts all the boats. You've heard that before. Um, This is out of its usual context, I guess. But uh, I, I thought of that phrase because in this passage, there is this rising tide of glory. Um, that's raising up everybody in Israel to new heights. The leaders and the common people alike. Everybody is kind of leveling up a step in glory here. And so there's Judah, there's Jerusalem, and there's the royal family. All three of them God is lifting to a new level of greatness and glory. Um, As you can probably imagine, uh, Jerusalem was kind of the center, the hub of life for the people who returned from exile in Babylon. Jerusalem is where the temple was. It's where the most influential leaders were. Jerusalem was the power center where the the influence and the wealth was concentrated. And this is the way it often goes, with a big urban center surrounded by smaller towns and countryside and agriculture. And that's why Zechariah goes out of his way here to say, first, listen, the blessings that I'm talking about are not just going to be for the bigwigs in Jerusalem. This is not just for the leaders. It's not just for the powerful people. This is for the whole people of God. This is for everyone. The Lord will give salvation, in fact, to the tents tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. See, the idea is this this blessing is going to start not at the city center. It's going to start in the countryside. The blessings of God's rescue and salvation are going to extend to all the covenant people, not just to the kind of who's who in the city. Then as he goes on, you can see if if that's the case out there in the towns and the countryside, if they are experiencing this glory and power of God in this remarkable way, well, then you just think, well, how much more? What do you think it's going to be like in the capital city? where those blessings are going to be all the more concentrated and put on display in even more glorious ways. Because that is, after all, where the temple is. That is, after all, the royal city where David once reigned. And you'd expect there to be this kind of next-level escalation of glory in a place like that. And sure enough, just like Judah is going to become as glorious as Jerusalem, well, everybody in Jerusalem is going to become like David. Of course, in his own day, David was an exceptional person, a -a one-of-a-kind person standing above the rest of the people of Israel. But now, guess what? Everybody in Jerusalem is going to be raised up to that royal dignity and power of David himself. Amazing. They're all, everyone, they are all going to be chosen and be loved, and protected, and empowered by the Spirit of the Lord. That's what it means to be like David. And so you think, well, then what's left to say about the royal family? What's left to say about the house of David, about David's own descendants, the heirs of his throne? What about them? 
What could conceivably be another level up in glory for that family from being king of Israel? He was already at the top. How can you get any higher than that? Well, if you think about it, the only person higher than David, as far as an Israelite was concerned, was the Lord himself. And so in verse 8, you get this actually kind of disconcerting statement. It's kind of shocking. It says, and the house of David shall be like God. Like the angel of the Lord going before them. You don't expect to hear that sort of thing from an Old Testament prophet. A human king being elevated, being compared in dignity with God himself? How could that promise possibly ever come true? How could Judah have a king who can be put on par with God? Even, even, as, like, even as a figure of speech. It, it almost sounds, I mean, if anybody other than Zechariah had said this, we might have thought, oh, that sounds dangerous. That almost sounds blasphemous to put the descendants of David on that divine level. And I kind of wonder how Zechariah's readers in the time between the Testaments might have puzzled over this verse. What could this possibly mean? Are we actually allowed to say this? Can you say this in church? You say this in the synagogue? Am I reading this right? Did Zechariah really just say that? I wonder if uh, Peter had passages like this in mind when he talked in First Peter about uh, chapter 1 about the Old Testament prophets, how they searched and inquired what is the Holy Spirit talking about when through them he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories? I think about how all this is resolved and becomes so crystal clear when you think about the Lord Jesus, the son of David. Because right? in Christ, what do we have? We have a king. We have a king for whom, and this is, and this is not hyperbole. This is not some kind of poetic overstatement, grandiose way of speaking to make a, a point. It's just the facts. The Lord Jesus, the son of David, is quite plainly as powerful as the Lord. Why? Because he is the Lord. The Lord come now in person to reign over his new Jerusalem, his new creation, people of God. And you think about the way we fit into this picture then, this picture of this rising tide of glory under the kingship of the Lord, who is also the son of David. Well, who are we then? We're those people of that new Jerusalem who all of us are reigning kings, all of us sharing in that glory of the spirit-anointed King David, this royal priesthood under the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ, all of us reigning as kings in union with Christ our Savior, even Zechariah says, even the feeblest among us, even the feeblest among us are like David in dignity and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. Because we belong to Jesus, our great King and Lord. So once again, you can see us here in the church experiencing this new creation, new Jerusalem glory. 
as the renewed people of God, the true Israel. All right, now there's a change of tone in verse 10. Verses 1 through 9 have a very positive tone. It's all about the people of Judah and Jerusalem coming out on top. They're victorious, glorious. Starting in verse 10, it's kind of like we modulate into this minor key where now all of a sudden the people are mourning and weeping. At first it feels like a stark contrast with verses 1 through 9. Like it's the opposite mood. How do these fit together? And you might think, well, maybe Zechariah's just completely changed the subject. Maybe we're talking about something completely different now. I don't think so, no. I want to point out a key detail about this chapter, as well as the next couple, that really ties this whole section together, and certainly this chapter together. And it's the repeated phrase, three words, that come up, well, many times. It's the phrase, on that day. On that day. So look at verse 3. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. Verse 4, on that day, declares the Lord. Verse 6, on that day. Verse 8, it's there twice. Um, On that day, the Lord will protect. On that day, they'll be like David. Verse 9, again, on that day, all these joyful things are going to happen. On that day. But then, verse 11, on that day, this morning, And weeping happens. So what day is Zechariah talking about? Well, if you've been with with us for other sermons on other minor prophets, you might have a guess, because this is a theme that's come up many times before. I would argue this is the same day that so many of the other prophets are usually talking about when they use this phrase, on that day. It's what's sometimes called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is this great prophetic theme in the Bible that is referring to a future great day of judgment and salvation. Salvation for God's people, judgment on God's enemies. A great day of judgment and salvation that is going to result then in a new era. A new age of covenant blessing and flourishing life with God for the faithful remnant of his people. That's the day of the Lord. And that is what Zechariah is describing here. He is describing a climactic future time. A time of salvation for God's people and judgment on God's enemies, and he's signaling, I am telling you, I am telling you about the day of the Lord. And this day of the Lord, uh, the New Testament teaches us, has dawned with the first coming of Jesus and is going to be fully realized in all of its glory when Jesus comes back. Okay, so what does this chapter then tell us? about that day of the Lord. Well, in verses 1 through 9, it's signaling that that day 
is going to involve God winning a victory for us. But that's not all this passage teaches us. That day is not only going to involve God winning a victory for us. It is going to involve God bringing about a change in us. Verse 10 begins to describe a change of heart within the people of the covenant. And I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. See, the weeping that follows here is the weeping of softened hearts crying out to God for mercy and grace under the conviction of sin. And why is that? Why are they crying out for mercy and grace? It's because they're looking, God says, on me, on him whom they have pierced. Well, that's kind of an odd thing to say. They're looking on me, on him whom they have pierced. God asked the question, how has Israel pierced the Lord? How could that even be possible for the people of the covenant to do physical violence to the Lord of the covenant? How do you pierce God? How does that even happen? Curiously, in the rest of the verse, there's a change, though, isn't there, from first person, it will look on me, to third person. Starts talking about this hymn, they, they shall mourn for him. It's a little mysterious, isn't it? Seems like you have this character who, on the one hand, sounds like he is the Lord, but on the other hand, seems like he is, there's a distinction. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And so in the rest of the chapter, everyone is humbling themselves in sorrow before God. He systematically goes through all these different subgroups of Israelites who are all, um, each and all together, publicly mourning over the way the covenant people have assaulted their covenant God, or perhaps in some sense this this person, this him, um, who is related closely to the Lord. Well, once again, what would have been mysterious, a a matter for contemplation and wonder and waiting for the people of Zechariah's day and the people between the Testaments sort of comes into focus again, doesn't it, with the coming of Jesus. Earlier, we read the passage where John recalls this prophecy when he records the piercing of Jesus' side. What was happening when Jesus was pierced? He was pierced because Israel had rejected him. It was the great climax of all of the ways that Israel, down through the centuries, had persistently rebelled against the Lord, rejected the leadership of their good shepherd, bringing to mind the themes from last week. But... On this great future day, Zechariah is describing what is going to happen. God's people 
seeing what they have done, coming under the conviction of sin, of the evil of this rebellion, they are going to cry out for grace and mercy. They are going, we could say they are going to repent. They are going to mourn for this one whom they pierced. Now, did all of the Israelites in the first century who participated in the crucifixion of Jesus, did all of them turn to God for grace and mercy? No. Some of them were hardened in their rebellion. Some of them came under the judgment that the last chapter describes, that chapter 11 describes. Not the salvation that chapter 12 describes. And so there's a great dividing line with the coming of Jesus. Which part of Israel are you going to be part of? The Zechariah 11 Israel or the Zechariah 12 new creation, true Israel, the faithful remnant who are going to repent and mourn for this one whom they have pierced. And indeed, some did. Some did turn in faith to that Lord Jesus whom they had crucified and yet whom God raised from the dead. That's what you see happening in the book of Acts. And along with them, again, in the book of Acts, what do you see? You see not just those Israelites, but many other people from among the nations gathering with them to form this new covenant, new creation, people of God, this true Israel, now gathered from all over the earth to become together in union with Christ, true sons of David, true sons of Levi. That's what we're participating in now as the church. Looking on Christ who was pierced, mourning and weeping over his death and our part in it. And crying out to God for grace and mercy and experiencing this new creation restoration. See, this chapter is a good reminder that experiencing God's salvation doesn't all happen in a major key. It's not all about being happy. It's not all about being cheerful. Sometimes we can fall into that thinking, real Christianity, real spirituality means that you always have a smile on your face, even if it's a plastic smile that's hiding the real sorrow and the real sin inside. Experiencing God's salvation in Jesus includes sorrow. It includes true sorrow over our sin. Grief over the way that we have offended against a holy God. And it involves a growing awareness that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, it was my sin. My sin that Jesus was bearing there. As he hung there dying for me. Who was the guilty? The hymn says. Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression. But thine, the deadly pain. And so, lo, here I fall, my Savior. Tis I deserve thy place. 
Look on me with thy favor. Vouchsafe to me thy grace, a spirit of grace, and please for mercy. That is what the Lord Jesus is working in the church today. The Holy Spirit awakens within us true grief over our sins as he teaches us to cry out to Jesus for help and forgiveness. And it's when you do that, it's when you know that sorrow over your sin, but then that's not where you stop, right? You feel that sorrow, then give way to the joy of God's forgiving grace in Jesus. That then. That is when the church gets the courage to stand contramundum against the world, against all comers. If God is for us, who can be against us? We are confident in the grace and the power and the approval of God, not because of what we have deserved, but because we belong to Jesus Christ, his perfect son. And so we stand contramundum because if God is for us, who can be against us? So let's pray. Father in heaven, when we look on Jesus, we know we weren't, we weren't there the day he died. And yet we recognize that it was our sin that he was crucified for that day. That is a humbling, devastating thought. And we would be the cause of the, that great tragedy of the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet, we recognize that in your providence, in your grace, by your power, it is not merely or even mainly tragedy. It's your greatest victory. And it is our great hope that Christ was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Help us, Lord, to go from here in the confidence of that atoning grace of Jesus so that we would have the courage in him to stand against all comers, confident in your power and protection as we celebrate our part in the new creation. In Jesus' name, amen.